Nipples for men. Now we'll see how these Russians deal with a crack SS division. These communists are all cowards. Have you looked at our caps recently? They've got skulls on them. Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? I don't, sir. Hans, are we the baddies? Why skulls? Well, maybe they're the skulls of our enemies. Maybe. But is that how it comes across? I mean, it doesn't say next to the skull, you know, yeah, we killed him, but trust us, this guy was horrid. Well, no, but... I mean, what do skulls make you think of? Death, cannibals, beheading, um, pirates. Pirates are fun. I didn't say we weren't fun, but fun or not, pirates are still the baddies. I just can't think of anything good about a skull. What about pure Aryan skull shape? Even that is more usually depicted with the skin still on. Whereas the Allies... Oh, you haven't been listening to Allied propaganda. Of course they're going to say we're the bad guys. But they didn't get to design our uniforms. And their symbols are all, you know, quite nice. Stars, stripes, lions, sickles. What's so good about a sickle? Well, nothing. And obviously, if there's one thing we've learnt in the last thousand miles of retreat, is that Russian agriculture is in dire need of mechanisation. <laughs> Tell me about it. But you've got to say, it's better than a skull. I mean... I really can't think of anything worse as a symbol than a skull. A rat's anus? Yeah, and if we were fighting an army marching under the banner of a rat's anus, I'd probably be a lot less worried, Hans. Some classic humour from that Mitchell and Webb look skit. Fitting, because in this eternal now we shall be dealing with the occult and Nazism. That includes the priestcraft of symbols, myths, and archetypal images. Fitting, too, because many slacktivists, snowflakes, and ass-clinchers will be triggered by this topic. Most of these meat sacks have lost even their ability to laugh in this cultural revolution age. A little bit about myself. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with two life-size companion dolls. I also do up-close sex magic. I both read and masturbate to tarot. I mean, Orwell did say that for the party to win, it must abolish the orgasm. The orgasm is the great symbol of self-forgetting pleasure, carefree release, and liberating rapture. These are evaporating like clouds in your coffee as society collapses under the dour weight of self-importance, divide-and-conquer Circe spells, and circular firing squad mentality. The old Nazis are applauding somewhere in their iron sky, even as everyone and their Anubis is called a Nazi when they disagree with a group thought orgasm-less dictums. Like C.G. Jung said in The Undiscovered Self, a million zeros joined together do not, unfortunately, add up to one. Ultimately, everything depends on the quality of the individual. But the fatally short-sighted habit of our age is to think only in terms of large numbers and mass organizations. 
Though one would think that the world had seen more than enough of what a well-disciplined mob can do in the hands of a single madman. Ask yourself, what's more terrifying, fear or the frightened? No orgasms, no individuality, no laughter. We're almost there. Yet we of the broken places are going to disrupt all of this. We don't care about that safety in numbers fallacy, safety over freedom canard, or safe speech compromise. We don't care about the assurances of the Demiurge and his Karens and Katamites in the establishment. As Karl Popper said, those who promise paradise on earth never produce anything but hell. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. Welcome to Aeon Bite to stop all hells and iron skies. Rediscover your ecstasy. Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat, only rhymes. And we're countering this by singing a better tune. An Orpheus poetic song exposing the empire that never ended. We're writing our own gospel and living our own myth. I am your host and lord of hosts, Miguel Connor, your pompadus of Gnosis. I am so honored by your company and feedback, for you are a shining crazy diamond that can light the universe with so much wonder. Time to shine. Time to orgasm. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. As mentioned, let's untangle the esoterica in the Nazi insanity. I can't think of anyone better than our astral guest, Dr. Stephen Flowers. He materializes at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, The Occult and National Socialism, The Symbolic, Scientific, and Magical Influences on the Third Reich. By Odin's Dingleberries, it's an amazing read that leaves no fascist stone unturned. I know there are many out there that feel this information is too traumatizing. But if we don't understand those, quote, dangerous magicians of Philip K. Dick, then we'll never be able to fight them or their ideological offspring. As Jung also said, to fight the darkness, you must expose it to the light of consciousness. So too bad slacktivists, snowflakes, and ass clinchers. Because democracy basically means government by the people, of the people, for the people. But the people are retarded. What's more, Philip K. Dick said the Germans lost the war, but the Nazis won it. The Third Reich was a Frankenstein creation of various streams, as we'll discuss soon and many Nazis survived and thrived after the war. They became part of the Stasi, NASA, 
Western European intelligence, American scientific community, and so forth. Eugenics, technocracy, and authoritarianism simply hired better marketing, even if Hugo Boss no longer made SS uniforms. The empire never ended. The Nazis have never left. But they're not in any place where the word Nazi is being thrown at. That's part of their magic. This is a marketing holocaust. 24 hours a day, for the rest of our lives, the powers that be are hard at work, dumbing us to death. And part of understanding Nazi magic is understanding the famous definition of magic from Dion Fortune. It goes, Magic is the art and science of causing changes in consciousness in accordance with will. And as Alan Moore wrote, I believe that magic is art, and that art, whether that be music, writing, sculpture, or any other form, is literally magic. Art is, like magic, the science of manipulating symbols, words, or images to achieve changes in consciousness. Indeed, to cast a spell is simply to spell, to manipulate words, to change people's consciousness. And this is why I believe that an artist or writer is the closest thing in the contemporary world to a shaman. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? Sure. I personally believe that there is magic to manipulate spirits and alter destinies. Yet the magic of more and fortune can manipulate the perception reality of an entire nation, collective consciousness even. Philip K. Dick spoke of the dangerous magician, but he also spoke of those who can create entire universes of the mind with the right employment of symbols, psychology, and rhetoric. That's a far more powerful form of magic, and we must learn to combat it once and for all. What the Matrix does, it weaponizes every idea, every dream, everything that's important to us. How do you fight it? As mentioned, know thyself and know the enemy's spells. Fear is the mind killer. So do as much as you can to live a life without fierce castration. Embrace the orgasm. Choose ecstasy over entertainment. And no heaven on earth is impossible or even a utopia. Know you are homeless because the Son of Man has no place to rest his head, as the Bible says. Or as Mark Twain also said, Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Last but not least, in this age of Hermes, embrace the trickster within you and enjoy the ride as Bill Hicks would want. It's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. Important too is the notion of the egregore. Mark Stavish defined it as a cult autonomous psychic entity composed of and influencing the thoughts of a group of people. 
he mentioned an older definition that goes, a home of conduit for a specific psychic intelligence of a non-human nature connecting the invisible dimensions with the material world in which we live. Possessed by what? By angels. Being aware of egregores, like Wotan for the German people as Jung wrote about, is as essential as the mass magic of changing the awareness of populations. Most of the population in the West is already a, quote, baddie, but few of us can work to wake them up, shove some red pill suppositories where the black sun don't shine. Ooh. Repeating, the safety in numbers is a fallacy, and we only need 5 to 10% of the population brimming with gnosis to tip the scales, expose the real Nazis in high places. You'll be one step closer with our interview with Stephen Flowers. And for subs, beyond the full interview and as an added bonus, Vance and I further discuss the occult and social nationalism. Don't miss it. A delusion starts, like any other idea, as an egg. Identical on the outside, perfectly formed. From the shell, you'd never know anything was wrong. It's what's inside that matters. For a delusion to thrive, other more rational ideas must be rejected, destroyed. Only then can the delusion blossom into full-blown psychosis. So what have we learned? That a delusion is an idea that an idea can be contagious. That human beings are pattern-seeking animals, by which I mean we prefer ideas that fit a pattern. In other words, we don't believe what we see. We see what we believe. And when we are stressed or our beliefs are challenged, when we feel threatened, the ideas we have can become irrational. One delusion leading to another and another as the human mind struggles to maintain its identity. And when this occurs, what starts as an egg can become a monster. This is the Aeon Bite interview, and with us, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined back by Dr. Stephen Flowers, this time to discuss his new book, The Occult in National Socialism, The Symbolic, Scientific, and Magical Influences on the Third Reich. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me again. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Always a pleasure having you. Love your work. Love your scholarship. And uh, this is certainly an engaging work. And with us, too, always glad to have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm fine and uh, looking forward to learning about the uh, Nazis and the uh, occult things that may have been in back of them. Well, uh, definitely this book is it. This is, I would say, the encyclopedia Great scholarship, uh, more than 500 pages, well-researched, and from all angles about a topic that it seems everybody thinks they know about today, but uh, 
there is still so much. So, uh, Stephen, uh, why did you decide to write uh, The Occult and National Socialism? Well, it has been a book that has been 50 years, a half wow. a century in the making. Uh, a friend of mine uh, back in uh, Dallas when I was just starting in junior college said, hey, I just saw a book at B. Dalton, you know, that you would probably really like. And uh, so it was A Spear of Destiny, 1973. And uh, I'd read uh, things uh similar or things, but then that really uh, tweaked my interest. For, of course, in retrospect, it is a, entirely a book of fiction, so declared in open court in England that uh, <laughs> that it was all uh, basically just uh, made up. Uh, there is a spear of destiny on all of that, yes, but all of the particulars of the whole thing uh, were uh, fictional, but uh, it, it tweaked my interest. He said, this man Guido von List makes uh, Alistair Crowley look like a boy scout. He's so evil <laughs> and terrible. So I got to know about this guy. Now, luckily, I knew uh, German uh, well enough by that time, even uh, quite early on in my career, uh, to go and start to get uh copies of List's books. Now, the only place you could get them in 1973, uh, even in, from Germany, it was impossible. They weren't uh, long out of print, but they had uh, collected the, the German archives the Army had uh, from SS libraries and so forth and sent them over to Yale and Harvard, and that's where they were wow. uh, stored. And I would get them through interlibrary loan and uh, they came through that way, and I and then I photocopied them. But they had the SS stamps in them and everything. Wow, fascinating! So I started to read it, and I and then I said, "This Spear of Destiny character is just a liar." You know, I mean, it's just not that <laughs> uh, not that uh, List was a Boy Scout or anything himself, but uh, none of the stories he Ravenscroft told were true. So. Indeed, yeah. So that's I what think started. There's... It started me to go down that road and start to research and being in the German department and studying German, more ancient Germanic things, but the runes and things of that nature certainly played back into this particular topic also. So it was all uh, useful. And from that point on, I started to collect all of the books that came out over the years on the subject and uh found that they were uh, uh, none of them were any good the only one that's come out that's really top quality of course is Nicholas Goodrich Clark's The Occult Roots of Nazism the flaw with that I, one of the features of the present book we're talking about uh, is that I have an annotated bibliography of this kind of literature where I give a general uh, sort of thumbnail uh, assessment of all of the books from Spear of Destiny to Goodrick Clark, whatever, uh, just to give a guide through this uh, bewildering literature that exists. But uh, Goodrick Clark's book was originally, it's a, an adaptation of his doctoral dissertation. And I had, I didn't have a copy of it, but I, I knew a guy who had uh, studied it and I had the 
table of contents when we discussed it in Germany and what it was it was a had a particular political angle to it as an Oxford doctoral dissertation. And so it had these uh, Marxist theories underlying the the composition of the work in the sense that the whole thesis was uh, they, these are irrational, these uh, sort of neo-Germanic kind of uh, things like Guido von Liszt and such are... Uh, Irrational reactions, a reactionary uh, impetus, you see, to it. And so it's interpreted from that angle originally. He, he, he uh, modified it and, and it wasn't so. When you write a dissertation, you're, you're writing that work for your supervising professor or professors to, to make them happy, right? Right. Uh, and so, uh, if that's what they wanted, that's what he gave. But I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, Nicholas Goodrick Clark has since di- died, passed away. But I think that uh, he was uh, doing a good work, but that was the only criticism I would have for him. He just, he focused on one angle, you see, just this neo-Germanic, that somehow it was uh, neo-Germanic pagans who were behind it. And uh, one of the things many years ago when uh, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was named Pope, right. and it was pointed out he was in the Hitler Youth, well, so was every other kid, you know, of the day. Uh, and, uh, but you see, uh, a, a reporter just made the side comment, which is a common thought, but it was actually broadcast on television. It says, oh, those Nazis were all pagans anyway. Just passed it off like that, just in that sense. And uh, that also uh, made it so that I had to show the full range and dimension of what was going on in National Socialism. Very little of it had anything to do with actual, uh, any sort of paganism at all. Uh, uh, Himmler, Heinrich Himmler was an enthusiast for that sort of thing. It's true. But uh, uh, otherwise, it was much less than some people try to make it out to be. You're right that Hitler did not like uh, Himmler's neo-pagan impetus. Right. He wanted to put in limits on it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As long as he was, you know, doing the things uh, he was being asked to do, uh, the nefarious things he was being asked to do, uh, he could be indulged. (laughs) That was one of the. Uh, interesting aspects of Hitler's leadership style, as I have in the book, I think I, I have a little subsection there called the leader who did not lead. He just sort <laughs> yeah. of collected a, a, a ragtag bunch of people and just kind of let them do their thing. As long as they did the basic things that he was satisfied, he didn't want to be bothered too much with the details. Uh, so he, he, as a, opposed to someone like a Stalin or something, who micromanage every detail of right. a person's innermost thoughts. <laughs> he just said, <laughs> "Just uh, get the basics done, and we'll go on." Uh, yeah, your book is exhaustive. You come from all the streams: uh, historical, mythological, magical, even psychological. But 
Stephen, uh, today it seems the word Nazi is basically everything I don't like on the Internet or in my school or in my job and fascism. And these terms just get thrown around. And, of course, comedians have done a great job from Seinfeld and the soup Nazi and Mel Brooks <laughs> to sort of kind of, you know, kind of decompress this dark name. But. How would, can, is there a central for the audience so they know and we can lay this to rest? Is there a central ethos to Nazism? I mean, like you write, uh, it's just, uh, Marxism, but instead of a class warfare, it's a race warfare. Can we say that? It's, you can say that or look at the name. <laughs> Na, uh, well, it says uh, the name of the, of the party tells you what it's about. The national, that is, to them that we think national, like the National Football League, what's that, you know, big deal. <laughs> but to a German, uh, national is the same as Völkisch. It is ethnic. It's an, a nation is an ethnic category, which is a, the true and Latinate definition of the word. It's people of common birth. Natio is the Latin word for birth, and that's where that comes from. Natural, national, all those words are related. So national, uh, that's the main thing. Nazional. Sozialistisch. It's socialist. That is the good of the whole before the good of the one. It is collectivist. It is uh, not, uh, it's hierarchical, et cetera. Socialistic. German, but in case you didn't know the nation we were talking about, it's the Germans and only them. Right. Uh, and, and then workers party. Worker, that is defined in their 25-point thing. It is people who work for a living, either with their hands, as it says, or with their minds. But this was a way of saying people earning, living on interest are to be eliminated. That category was ideally to be done away with, that you couldn't just sit and not work. It's a right. workers party. And so the... but. Done. So it's socialism, all, so much, so much, even down to the idea that the banner, the flag should be primarily red, are things that he took inspired by Lenin, what the Bolsheviks did in Russia. Uh, he idealized, he saw this is the way we work it. Now, in my way of, uh, of thinking, so whether you are talking fascist, uh, Italian, uh, or, uh, the Nazis or the Bolsheviks, they are all really one. What do they have in common? They are gangsters. Mm -hmm. They are organized to, but whereas gangsters say, get off my turf, this is where I'm doing this racket or that one and so forth. These people had the idea, uh, Bolsheviks first, to actually Take over the whole country, the whole thing. We're going to take over everything. Everyone and everything in it is going to be subject to our gang's uh, uh, rulership. And we're just going to get together and get this uh, thing done. But uh, the Bolsheviks, uh, like Stalin, he was a uh, bank robber. You know, I mean, that's how what his, his <laughs> yeah. thing was originally. He was a, 
about a robber, a thief, armed robbery to finance the party. You understand? You know, but see, it's really just like any <laughs> yeah. other organized crime group. So uh, that, that's the thing they all have in common. Now, what how, what their theories are and things they use to prop up their themselves for purposes of existing in the modern world uh, are are all just uh, window dressing, really. So anyway, that's that's the thing that holds them together now. Not so Nazis. They say this is a Nazi. So we're, so many times. It, uh, the person saying it agrees with the methods of the Nazis and they are using them to the maximum extent, the Nazis, the Bolsheviks, the fascists, etc., because they're thinking collectively and they think of themselves as the boss or the, uh, uh, of this, uh, collective thought stream and, uh, you're outside that collective and so you're uh, no good Nick. You know, so oh, yeah. then they have a, a word, whatever. Uh, everybody could be well. So somehow the Nazis say there's some kind of Jewish influence in your thinking, and they had this doctrine of uh, the uh, kind of like original sin that somehow everyone had a little bit of the Jewish blood in them, you know, and you had to uh, uh, through behavior and. Uh, obedience to the party, you could uh, overcome that. But it sounds so much like religion, right. medieval Christianity. It was all so much was taken from that. Also, you know, because anytime uh, there was an effective, efficient mode of organizing, directing uh, a collective group, uh, the masses, to fulfill a mission in history, then they were going to use it, you know, and that's what a lot of the magic in this book being described shows how they actually uh, did that when we're successful in doing it. Like so many other politicians, they're much better at gaining power than using it. Yeah, very much. Even as you mentioned, when Hitler decided to, uh, go with anti-Semitism, which is what most people assume is Nazism. You point out mm -hmm. he was only continuing what the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church have been doing for centuries, which is blaming the Jews and exterminating the Jews in mass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if he had just said, well, let's uh, pick, let's do something else. Well, there is nothing else that you're going to get down to the visceral level of everybody from the shopkeeper, the peasant, even and the intellectuals themselves have not fully rid themselves of these uh, ideas. Uh, the Jewish uh, people were one of the very few minorities you could pick on, right? right. And they had the they had the advantage of being uh, the advantage to his propagandistic purposes. I mean, uh, had the advantage of being visible and successful. You know, so that they would uh, could easily ascribe it. You're not successful, Fritz. You are not successful because some Jewish person has got your uh, advantage. They've got your what you should have. He has, and of course mm -hmm. they they confiscated all the Jewish people's property and then mm -hmm. just redistributed it. You know, so that was one of the first things that started happening. 
But, yeah, this uh, this was going on in Europe, happened in Russia, mm-hmm. happened in all these other places. It's uh yeah, right. typical projection on the minority, your shadow, your sins and take all their good stuff. Nothing nothing uh, new under the I, sun. I, yeah, there there's a difference between there are two two kinds of uh people as individuals that could belong to different groups. But there are people who are uh uh no, they are lying. No, this is a bunch of, you know, nonsense. But do it because it is effective and uh, yeah, useful. And then the more dangerous fanatic is the kind of person who actually believes their own lies. And you can hardly ever disabuse them of of that mindset, you know, because it's not like, well, see, that's not really not working or this is not true because... The fanatic is not subject to such argumentation, you know. Uh, someone yeah. like Hitler in, in Mein Kampf, he points out, he says, I wasn't, I wasn't raised anti-Semitic. Uh, my father wasn't. Uh, I really wasn't. I just came to the conclusion the only way his problem, or as he saw it, was to, to unify the German-speaking world into a sense of na- nationality. They really, in his mind, they didn't have it, because after all, Germany had only become one country and then incomplete, because Austria and other German-speaking areas were not part of Germany. They, they were a different country, but uh, they'd only become a large country in the normal sense in 1871. That was just... His grand, his father's, you know, uh, generation uh-huh. or whatever. So uh, there really wasn't that national sense of uh, nationality really deeply ingrained. They were Bavarians or Prussians or, or Saxons or whatever in their own minds, kind of like where where I'm from. You're you're a Texan first, right? You know, you identify. Uh, not a, most people living in Texas, but people who were born here and raised on the mythology of, of Texas and all. It's like a country, but it has all of those things that those German people, many of them would also have. So that uh, uh, organizing them, getting them to believe that they are one people and his thing, with, which was taken from the Catholic Church, originally a motto, but in German, they said, Ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer, one people, uh, ein Volk, ein Reich, one empire, ein Führer, one leader. So uh, that was their motto, just follow that, that there would be one, uh, one church, one uh, pope, you know, and so forth was taken from the Middle Ages. But that sort of thinking was uh, he was his opinion and his feeling that they didn't have it and hey I wanted to make them have it and the way you make them have it is to have a boogeyman you know a common enemy and the best kind of common enemy is kind of like the satanic scare of the late 80s the best kind of uh, boogeyman to have is one that really has no power and really is can be clearly identified as existing, uh, yet which instills fear and such so that you can always be successful. You can always blame someone as being part of it if you want to uh, and, and so forth. Uh, so it's uh, just a 
again, a kind of a way to manipulate the masses is the whole key to it. I think, uh, Stephen, that's where the magic is. And let me give you a couple of quotes, and then I hope it's not too much. But in uh, one part of your book, uh, page 407, you quote, uh, or I'm quoting you, as Steigman Gall intimates, the Nazis have assumed an archetypal place in the collective consciousness of the West. They have ascended to a kind of transcendental world where their images have become immortal and eternally meaningful, even if often fiction. And, of course, we see that in popular culture. The Empire in Star Wars is based on the Nazis, Indiana Jones. Uh, there's so much out there that is uh, that, again, the Nazis are sort of this archetypal Manichaean evil image. But in another, in chapter seven, you write the Third Reich was an empire of applied symbology. And basically, mm -hmm. it seems like that's where the magic is, right? From Crowley, the idea that will to will someone to transform their consciousness, to use archetypal symbols, ancient mythologies, uh, egregores, and the magic is nobody did it better than the Nazis, you would say. This was their form of magic to hypnotize an entire nation and control their will. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes, and that was uh, I, one of the things I did in the, the book, because see, people will say, like these books uh, that are not so good, that have been written in the past, that term Nazi, and then everything that's kind of bad uh, accretes to that word, and they just kind of go wild with it and with their <laughs> imaginations. Yeah. But I wanted to say, okay, Nazi. I, I wanted to really have direct contact with the actual Nazi ideology. So where could I find that more uh, purely than in the words of Hitler in his book, Mein Kampf? So I read that book uh, with an eye towards where does he indicate his magic? Where does he uh, spill the beans, as it were? Right. And I found he did that repeatedly uh, because he knew or maybe he thought everybody was really going to read the book. But I think he knew that most people wouldn't. The only ones that would actually read it would be other aspiring leaders, either within the party or as competitors. And his main uh, uh, agenda was to prove to these, his true audience for that book, that he was, to coin a phrase, the smartest man in the room. <laughs> that he knew how, he knew what he was doing and how to do it. And he had brilliant insights into how to do it. And so, for example, where he will say, we have our meetings at night because it is in the night that the mind of the masses is more susceptible to suggestion. He actually, wow. him, my God, well, what do you say? You know, or we wow. have, we use red banners because that excites people and uh, attracts their attention. The Bolsheviks did it. We, that's, and I've seen that and it really works. We're going to have a primarily red banner for our symbol, et cetera. He does this repeatedly, uh, uh in the book. He gives insight. So I, have a whole section in there uh, about uh, the primary examples of that sort of thing that come from this book. So it's not my imagination or my interpretation as to 
A, whether this is Nazi or not, you can't get more Nazi than that, uh, <laughs> as far as being an authentic uh, source, and uh, and that it's uh, magic. It is. Uh, he is aware of this. He is aware of what he's doing and uh, has some kind of magical insight. But uh, he also knows that actual occultism, that's not something you want to put on your <laughs> a part of your brand. That's what I see the Nazis, what they were doing. Uh, you have this, uh, they had this book, it was, over, it was about 600 pages long. It wasn't for sale, really. It was just a party manual uh, called the Organisationsbuch, the Organizational Book of the National Socialist German Workers Party. And in that, their, the uniforms, the badges, the insignia, everything is outlined. This is the way it should appear, everything. So they want to project the whole idea of being in uniform, projecting what? Semiotically, this is we are uh, organized. We are on the same page. We know what we are doing. And all that is, well, because our country 1920s Germany is completely out of control. It is the money's no good and the lawlessness reigns everywhere and so forth and so on. We need somebody to, to, to fix this situation. Who better than these uniformed, sharp looking, strong and brave guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's what they wanted to project. And part of that, of course, is, uh, is the, the the uniformed appearance and uh, all the about the magic works two ways, two sides. Not is it just a projection to the to the rubes, you know, to the to the people who are uh, the marks, as it were, for your magic, but also for the magicians themselves to make themselves uh, feel and be powerful in their own minds and and so forth, and to to organize themselves, even within themselves, discipline and such. So it it, it worked externally and internally, that sort of appearance. He, you know, Hitler would, he wanted to project this idea that he was a, you know, a common man, not, so his uniform is usually simple as compared to Goering or someone like that. Right. He was a real a war hero, uh, but uh, he, so it appears simple in the idea of coming, for example, the masses are out there, and he comes not from backstage somewhere out there, but rather oftentimes would come through the ranks, from the back of the room forward, to say, I am coming from you, I am emerging from you, and I am embodying all of you at once here in this one person. And so uh, those were all symbolic, calculated acts of magic yeah he was he was indeed the master at it and so were the nazis that's where the magic is as you write Stephen. uh and during those times there would have been a fascist there would have been a hitler there would have been a fascist dictator because fascism was sort of the rage if you would and Mm -hmm. uh but he would have just been another franco or mussolini or where i'm from portugal another salasadish uh, but what changed, what was different with Hitler is that when we go to the magic and the marketing is that he was an artist and a visionary. So he saw farther and broader and inside people more than your, 
you know, boilerplate dictator, if you would. Mm-hmm. And he knew of the occult, of course. He just didn't want yes. to, like you said, he didn't want to advertise it too much. I have a for- forthcoming book, uh, which uh, a lot of people have heard, heard of, uh, which is, uh, well, and the, the book that it's based on is uh, Ernst Schertel's book, Magi, Magic. Now, that thing was translated 10 years ago or so, unfortunately, uh, a, a R2-D2 or some other machine did the translation. And so it's very, uh, it's very, uh, well, some sections are left out, not on purpose, I don't think, but I don't want to talk too much about bad translation. But, uh, so I re, re- translated it uh, in a genuine way, but also that's just part of the book. I also introduce and comment on the, the authors, uh, that's his Ernst Schertel. His uh, magical world, which is one of the most fantastic, he's sort of dubbed the philosopher king of Weimar, and uh, he was into uh, sex, sex magic, uh, dancing, nudism, you name it. He was mm. he was in it, and uh, he wrote this book, Magi Magic, and the publisher sent a copy of it to Hitler in 1923, and this book was found among Hitler's effects in the bunker. He's kept wow. it with him. Right, you know, one of the book, few books that could be there. And uh, he 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 outlined, he underlined, or put marks in the margins throughout the book. So this is, and he did. And when you read this book, that the actual book, you uh, see that he was applying many of these methods. And, uh, and had this in mind as far as his own, his own development, as it were, was concerned. And that was to, uh, to actualize a, a kind of a God. Uh, Sheratel just says we use both terms sort of indiscriminately, a God or a demon. You know, the daimon in the Greek or the ancient Greek sense or Gnostic sense or whatever, the daimon that you actualize and become that thing. And when that happens, then all magic works to the, to that diamond's capabilities. Sheratel, I think is a true magician in that he is well aware of the limitations of magic in the sense that not uh, all magic works as we might imagine or wish it would work. And his explanation is a logical one and, True to my experience, that uh, with the the the, the diamond you have uh, is maybe can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it can do certain things very well, uh, and that when I say it, it's like your uh, innermost uh, divine being in the uh, Zoroastrian sense. That's the Fravashi, the Germanic, the Philia, et cetera, et cetera. This sort of demigod. That is your core, uh, the being as a godlike, uh, creature is some, all people can identify with or say, oh yeah, you know, spark of the divine to quote Meister Eckhart, the, this bit of the divine that's in each of us. Uh, it's just the simplest and most straightforward way of putting it. But then when you get into magic, people like Sheratel or 
the Greek magical papyri or et cetera, you're going to see people are going to say, well, let's go with that. Let's work with that. Let's make that happen. Let, what are the technologies for that? Uh, uh, which, of course, Crowley calls a knowledge and conversation of a holy guardian angel. Right. You know, so uh, same same thing as you find in the Greek magical papyri, et cetera. But Sherkel is just really a pragmatic, straightforward. Now, the book itself is hard to read in the sense that it it's like you, this man were sitting in his at his desk in his office, just kind of conversing with you. You know, it's not pedagogical and outlining everything and exact uh, like he's a teacher trying to convey this, but rather a much more uh, sort of diverse kind of discussion. But if you piece it together, uh, which I think is what he wanted you to do, you come up with some pretty powerful stuff. And I think that's why Hitler was kept this book, looked at this book, had it with him to the end, you know. That makes sense. I mean, as you write, uh, when asked uh, what his religion was, Rudolf Hess said that his religion was, the party was Hitler, but Hitler is Germany. So Hitler yeah. really wanted an apotheosis. He wanted to unite with the German mm-hmm. daemon and his daemon and just mm-hmm. become encompassing. Exactly. And that's why he would, or at least, yeah, would um, in, introduce Hitler, right? That the, 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 the country, the party, and the personality of Hitler were one thing. Indeed. Very powerful. And Vance, uh, what do you what do you think, Vance? Or do you have a question? Or are you watching the producers on the side? <laughs> no, <laughs> <obviously>. Springtime in, <laughs> Ger- in Ter- <laughs> yeah, for Hitler in Germany. Yeah. Um, as far as um, Hitler, I wonder what Hitler did in private. You know, I mean, Rudolf had said what he said, but I wonder if Hitler actually did any rituals, or uh, even though he read and studied, apparently. Um, and also, I was thinking of King Arthur, right? King Arthur was the land, right? So he he was uh, King Arthur was identical to the to England, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the Pharaoh you know is identical to the country of Egypt, right? He was the country, yeah. and he was mm-hmm. God. So it's kind of Hitler was setting himself up, I guess, as a neo Pharaoh or a neo King Arthur, right? Even though they they wanted to because of. Kaiser had just been sort of royalty in the normal sense had been uh, sort of dethroned and they yeah. didn't want to, because there were still those people were still around so they didn't want to share power with a legitimate as it were uh, uh, royalty so they had to get rid of that concept and say that's not what we're talking about but functionally it, it's exactly the same. It's just a new nobility. It's like what the Bolsheviks did. You know, got rid of the nobility, but they replaced it with a new nobility. That is the party. And the Nazis did exactly the same thing. So we, again, the gangster motif, <laughs> we want to take over the country and be the boss and replace the nobility with our nobility, a nobility which is distributed among the uh, the gang, according to their loyalty to the leader and their effectiveness in uh, fulfilling missions, 
Yeah, but, it's so uh, ironic. Uh, look, the, the, the Russians did the same exact thing, you know, maybe a little different exactly. symbology and so forth. But and and Hitler hated the communists, and the communists hated Hitler, and look what happened in World War Two. And yeah. um, they're just competing socialists, I guess. Right. Well, well just like uh, two gangs, you name them, you know. I mean, two trips of the blood families <laughs> hate each other, but they're doing the exact same, you know. Uh, Routine is the same thing, exactly. Yeah. It's just, uh, we don't like it. They hate us because they ain't us. You know, I mean, that's the only reason. I mean, it's not based on principle, but rather just simply, you're not a part of our uh, group. So that's, that's the extent of the animosity. Hitler and Stalin signed a non-aggression pact. And when on September 1st, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland, uh, it was just a few days, a day or two later, whatever, uh, Stalin invaded Poland from the other side, unnoticed at the time. I mean, it happened if it, uh, and people knew it, uh, the uh, intelligence knew it, but, uh, they had decided to divide Poland. That was the original sort of thing. And they each invaded from their own side, but only, it was only seen because that was the way it was supposed to unfold that Hitler invaded Poland. So war is, now we have war. Wow. And it's, in, it's insane. The whole thing with Hitler, of course, was a, what I point out. I didn't, hadn't actually seen anyone come out and say it before, but it's absolutely true, and others probably have uh, quite a bit. Uh, uh, Hitler was a, uh, a victim, if you will, of PTSD, mm-hmm. you know, and that explains a lot of his strange behaviors ascribed to, oh, he was in contact with uh, demonic forces and so <laughs> forth. But, you know, if he ever had dreams, not being able to sleep, Yes, all the, he had all the, the symptoms and signs, but uh, there's no more horrific war in the history of war than it was the, the first world war. And, uh, if he's gonna, if you're gonna get PTSD, that's, that's the laboratory for it. It's the horrible, most horrible thing. And then really, of course, World War II is just an extension of World War One. And World War One was not, was stupid. It was unnecessary. So the whole millions upon millions of people who died in the, both wars, but especially the Second World War, were completely historically unnecessary and irrational. To think that we could go uh, as a planet or as a, and these are the people, whether talking the Germans, the English, the French, the Americans, the most educated uh, population, most modern populations on the planet that's what leads people to criticize the whole notion of progress progress through education and rationality when the whole most rational and educated peoples on the planet threw themselves into that yeah that just says that cannot be true progress is is not what we thought what it was sold as, as it were, historically by Enlightenment thinkers and such. That uh, uh, And that happens repeatedly. But people like Hitler, or uh, uh, whether it's Hitler or or, or, or Lenin or uh, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini or whoever take advantage of the 
peoples, the masses, uh, sort of a visceral archetypal uh, attachment to ancient and eternal kind of uh, paradigms and myths. They can be exploited. You know, that's why learning about such things as these kind of myths and how they work and what they're really for and how they could be uh, used against your better interests are is a valuable kind of thing to study. I mean, for the educational system, which, of course, it would never, never happen, but uh, that would be a true and great uh, insight to get some uh, to, uh, to teach and learn some uh, Mercia Iliada and people and, 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 and Jung right. and thinking like that to say, let's look at ourselves and history and so forth from this uh, angle. Then people, it's like when you learn about advertising and how it's worked psychologically, et cetera, then advertising never works on you again. You can't be <laughs> yeah. uh, just. The, the, the girl in the bikini, you know, on top of the <laughs> car. Oh, I, I got to have that car. You know, I was just like, well, that's just not, <laughs> that language has been demystified. And, uh, and uh, myth and magic and all that has its uh, purpose and place in human history and in, in the lives of individuals, but it should be used for what it was intended for, not for a thing that someone can redirect those impulses to their individual personal interest and away from our own. So, again, that's what I would hope some that kind of thing can break through in, in the in the content of this book so that you can see how they did it in the most dramatic fashion possible. And then I leave it up to others to uh, to make the connections in their own lives and their own histories and so forth. We'll see it happening again. Yeah, that's definitely a, a good warning. But there's so much in your book, Stephen. I mean, you go from, again, all the angles from theosophy, Richard Wagner, uh, the pseudoscience, eugenics, ariosophy, uh, the, the, you know, the Weimar Republic obsession with astrology and nudity. There was just so many streams that are, that were going through it. Uh, but I think, uh, one of the things I think is important for the audience to know is the concept of, uh, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing it, the concept of the Volk or Volkism. Volk. It's just like an F. Volk. Oh, Volk. Kind of back. It's Volk. 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 Yeah. So that's yeah. what it is. Folk, just folk, folk. Germany. Okay. Folk. And folk. folk. Folk is people, is the race. So we're going back to some sort of uh, idea of a pure German race. Does this include their traditions and every and everything else, or? Yeah, it's uh, well. It's the the people have uh, their myths. A folk, a folk group has a is a. Uh, a kind of uh, total culture. This is just true. We're not talking about Nazis or anything, just the idea that uh, a people, let's just say the word people, that's just people don't like that word, but uh, a folk has naturally 
that word natural is nation, okay, has things like a a bloodline that is a genetic DNA component, a ideology that is a, re, a religion, a rituals, culture, all kinds of laws and things that are peculiar and particular to it, has a language that is its own, and has a way of doing things, making things, uh, the style, the way they make their pots, to the way they train their horses, to whatever. There's material culture, these kinds of culture, material culture, linguistic culture, ideological culture, and ethnic culture. That's the true uh, spectrum and the body of the thing we call culture or a folk. You can see that in the anywhere, uh, and some have it uh, in extreme, uh, for example, a Japanese they have a language, a way of writing, a way of everything, and they're very much a, a people. Uh, whereas others uh, have uh, uh, one or another of these components is extremely strong. For example, we brought up, or you did the idea of the Pharaoh in Egypt, and you can see that uh, there's a cultural continuity in Egypt that is astounding. Yet the ethnic makeup of the Egyptian people changed at different times. There were Nubian pharaohs and everything right. else, but they, but they, each one of these uh, acquiesced in the, this, the culture, the religion, the the other cultural uh, components can, would be dominant, and, and because it was very effective. Uh, and so you can find, but to analyze a culture, you have to look at all these components uh, to really get the complete picture. Sometimes it's stronger in one area or another, but that was the idea of an integral culture that that is seen as an ideal by uh, by people like uh, like. Uh, the Nazis. It's not. It's not necessarily obviously anything sinister or terrible. Uh. It's just. Uh, it's just a, a way of of looking at uh, existence. Most people would be quite most happy when they're just being authentic, right? This is our thing. This is the way we like to do things. This is how we like to live, behave. This is what entertains us, et cetera, and so forth. And uh, the, as long as it's just focused on doing their own thing and not worrying about what the neighbor is doing, then everything can be quite nice. But too many, too many people are worried, you know, too many Gladys Kravitz in the world. <laughs> what is that woman doing? <laughs> she shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Call them Karen's just today. Trying to live here. Come on. So, uh, so this is something uh, like, uh, you know, Mussolini talking about the Roman Empire, even though it'd been centuries, mm -hmm. or today you got Edragon talking about the Ottoman Turk Empire, Saddam Hussein talking about the, the wonders of Sumer. So this is a kind of <laughs> bring this nostalgia to some golden age of power. That's also part of Volkism, you would say, kind of. Uh, could, yeah, it could, could be, of course. Uh, sometimes they're, uh, we say like, uh, there's a lot of, uh, 
mythologizing or, or lying about it uh, in the sense that Saddam Hussein you're trying to make his connection to Sumer. Right. Uh, you know, even the, uh, the Akkadians are the immediate uh, heirs to the Sumer, uh, you know, we're not, right. you know, really part of the same uh, group, but that's all kind of ir- irrelevant. And so you see the uh, values of these uh, uh, groups or cultures, etc. And then discussing, uh, is this a good thing uh, for me personally or for a, a, a group and, and make decisions based on a, a rational uh, choice. But these uh, manipulators such as a Hitler or a Stalin or Saddam Hussein, whatever, they're not interested in that. They're just saying, is it useful? <laughs> you know, can I make it? Can I sell it? Can I make you believe it's true? And the way to say that uh, uh, picking, for example, Hitler said, well, we got to have an anti-Semitic platform. That's very important because that's what's going to succeed and fills the bill of our uh, agenda here. So that's made our choice for us. Uh, we're not worried about the truth or reality, we're only interested in effectiveness and success. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, your book uh, so breaks so much down with so much great, uh, insights, some, some that I didn't know, like, uh, and, or I forgot, like the fact that Hugo Boss created the mm-hmm. SS uniforms. Hitler right. was the one who designed the swastika. There was just a, the word Nazi was actually sort of, uh, before social, uh, national socialism was a word for like country bumpkin in the 19th century, right? right? Like yeah, or fake. A or a thug. But well, yeah, I can't forget about one of Hitler's other designs. Oh, yeah. And that is the VW bug. Of course. Right. <laughs> because you see, Herb. and then that goes a little bit deeper to uh, something that's very interesting or meaningful for us, at least a little bit. And that is, uh, Hitler's, uh, uh, hero and role model was one Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. Yes. Henry Ford wrote the textbook, if you will, on anti-Semitism in a series of articles he wrote for the newspaper and there in uh, Michigan and, uh, called The International Jew. And it was compiled into a book and translated into German and Hitler. This was his, uh, his main source of kind of the nuts and bolts of the whole theory. And Hitler had a portrait in his office uh, over his desk, uh, not of, you know, Bismarck or anything like that, but of Henry Ford. Henry Ford. Ford. And why? And he said, like, what was one of the great things Henry Ford did? He made an automobile for the people, a Volkswagen. There's our word Volk again. The, The people's car, one that everyone could own. That was, uh, you know, designed you know, in a beautiful way, aerodynamic, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So he actually sketched it and made, this is what I want. I think he turned it over to Ferdinand Porsche, who was the designer of, uh, the, of automobiles. Porsche actually uh, designed and had built 
incredible tanks for the Russian front. The problem with it was they were works of art. Each tank was like had handmade. It was like you were trying to make of like a Rolls Royce <laughs> or something, except when you get out there into the Russian winter, Right. And everything starts breaking down. You go, oh, <laughs> this part is broken, sir. So we'll have to hand make a new one. You know, whereas the Russians had their, uh, was it, T-38 uh, tanks, the Stalin tank they were called. And they were like a real Volkswagen in the sense that they were all mass produced, you know, replaceable parts and made in great mm. number. So it was kind of like the Russian front and the tank world was like, uh, like the battle of the the English against the Spanish and the the, the Spanish Armada, you know, the Drake right. had all these small ships darting in and out, and the, these galleons, these giant Spanish ships, just were. Uh, it's very similar to the, what happened on the Russian front there. But uh, so he, he Hitler idealized Ford, and and it was not only his theories about. Jewish people, but uh, also his idea that he made a car for the people, which is a Nazi scam gangster thing. And also that they had workers had to pay so much or forego so much of their wages to pay into a fund to buy one of these cars. Uh But none of those cars were ever done. We are at the end. Uh, um, do you have a website, Stephen? Uh, obviously, the good people, you can get it, uh, the good people at Inner Traditions, you can get it there, Amazon, but do you have a website? Uh, where all my books that are available are available on a website called seekthemysteries.com. Okay. Seekthemysteries.com. And uh, there all my books uh, can be uh, bought. And then there's woodharrow.com, W-O-O-D-H-A-R-R-O-W, woodharrow.com. And there it's a, uh, a site for, for teaching more, uh, academic kind of thing, but we're going to be expanding that pretty soon. And there you can hear about many, 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 many hours of me jibber jabbering on topics of Indo-European, uh, well, history and, and and all kinds of things. Wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll definitely have it on the show notes, but we are at the end. Uh, highly advise everybody to read The Occult and National Socialism. I'm going to reread it again because it just covers everything that you ever wanted to know. It gives you the zeitgeist, the history, the meta history. It's a, a wonderful read, so highly recommend this. But uh, as we get to the end, Vance, thank you for uh, keeping us company in this uh, journey. I think uh, this is going to ruin a lot of people's preconceptions. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, spent, yeah, well, out there. Reason, that's what I've tried to, to bring reason to the topic. You know, and when you wade into uh, a nest of, of uh, some of the great unreasonable <laughs> Topics of history, and you you know you attack it with reason. Now you come up with great uh, information, but it does disappoint people who uh, you know are want to have uh, some of the most outlandish fairy tales. I've got a myth of the 20th century, right? Uh, That's most outlandish fairy tales of uh, of uh, 
of the century are uh, can be put to rest. But I think it's important that we do so and look at it reasonably. I agree. So thanks, Stephen. It's a great, great talk. Yeah, well said, Stephen, and thank you very much for coming on AM Byte. We always enjoy your company and uh, your time and your hard work. Thank you. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. Stephen's scholarship is always a thing of fascist-destroying beauty. In our second part, Stephen will continue explaining about Volkism or Folkism. I know I'm mispronouncing it. He'll cover two Nazi rituals, uniform designs, and more on symbols, as well as the magic in their oaths and the infamous salute. We'll talk about the concept of the egregore and thought forms, and then Stephen will grant us some ideas to ensure something like the Third Reich doesn't rise again in the West, and much more. As mentioned in the intro, and for all subs, You'll also get access to Vance and me further discussing the occult and social nationalism. Don't miss it. So please become a member for the full Hitler on Magical Ice. It's only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 for Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. For AB Prime members and higher level patrons, you'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord. If you find value in this content, please support this Red Bill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the US Mail or some other platform. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip via Stripe now. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Consider joining the Finding Hermes program where we have bi-monthly meetings on Gnostic practices and rituals as well as some cool Q&As. I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto is your bag. If you need help with all these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. <laughs>